Welcome to Hope Assembly of God Online. We believe no matter the journey, there is always hope. This is a recording of our live Sunday sermon, unedited, uncut, real. We're continuing our series on learning to lead from the book of Nehemiah. A couple of weeks ago, I heard a quote that really stopped me in my tracks, and it said this, make every major decision in the cemetery. I thought, wow, what a thought. Make every major decision from the cemetery. And there's two reasons that I thought of, and probably more. One is it helps us determine what really matters. How much of life and living life do we stress over and we focus on things that aren't really going to matter in the, in the long run? The cemetery reminds us of that. The cemetery also reminds us uh, to focus and to give clarity on what we want to accomplish in life. Because we only have one life and it's for a relatively short period of time. And we have to determine what we want to accomplish or we end up accomplishing not, not much. And what we want to accomplish in life is, is that mission that God has given us. And we've used the word mission and vision interchangeably. One of the most influential books that I've read uh, in my life uh, for leadership is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. It came out actually in the late 80s. Hard to believe it's been that long. And I've continued to use it for all of these years uh, later. He puts that same thought like this, begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind, and you walk, he walks you through in reading the book, if you were to uh, be able to hear your own funeral and what people were saying, what is it that you want people to say about you, or what is it the story you want them to tell, begin with that and then work your way backwards. Develop the, the plan and the mission from that point. Begin with the end in mind. I've done many different funerals at, at, uh, through, through the years, and I think um, one of the saddest I remember was someone was um, speaking of their mom and just had one obscure quote to say. I'm not, I'm not going to say the quote because I don't think it's a very good one. And I remember thinking, wow, that is sad. That is sad. Now, I've had people give too long of a eulogy, but at least they had good things to say. <laughs> you know, uh, too long of a eulogy doesn't work either. Uh, but anyway, and too short doesn't work. Uh, but I thought, wow, that is, that is really sad. I began to think about what is it that we want people to say uh, about us? And I'm just going to use some silly examples because I've seen them in memes. And one of them was, he had a nice lawn. Well, that's, that's good, and it said it right on his tombstone. I thought, well, that's nice. You know, I want to have a nice lawn, and I like to mow, but I'm, I'm hoping on that day, when there's a reflection on the uh, completion of my life, that it would be more than he had a nice lawn. Uh, another one I saw is he had a great truck. I love great trucks. I want to someday have a great truck. By the time I get one, it won't be one of those real big high ones because I can't get in them now. Okay, I just want a little, little truck that I will be able to get in and out of and drive around town with uh, uh, a, a dog and a, and a, and a, and a coffee. That, that's pretty much all. 
at that stage, at that stage of, of life. Uh, all of these things are nice, and, and they can be important, but I'm hoping that we, as spirit-filled believers, have a higher purpose and a higher mission that we want to accomplish in this one life than a nice lawn, a nice truck, a nice house, a nice whatever's going to be left behind when we're gone. I'm hoping for something so much more than that. What is it that you want to accomplish in life? And more importantly, what does God want to accomplish through you? What is the mission? What is the purpose of your life? Why are you here on earth for this time? My mission has never changed since I was 16 years old. I was saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, called into ministry. I remember going somewhere with my parents in the car and I leaned forward and I said, you know what, I know what God wants me to do with my life. This is 16. I think my parents probably thought I was crazy, but it, it actually was a, a, a God thing and has never really changed from uh, 40 years. And, it, and it's this, I want everyone who gets to know me to grow in their relationship to the Lord. Okay? So it's relational and it's growth because I'm a relational person. I'm not a detail person. I drive detail people crazy because I don't care as much about the details. Not that details aren't important, they're hugely important, but that's not my thing. I'm more of a big picture person and then I need other people to fill in the, the details. I'll make the decision and then I need other people to carry out uh, the details. Uh, mine is relational. I want to develop a relationship with people and that God would use my life to help them grow in their relationship to the Lord. Whether that's they don't know the Lord and come to know the Lord, or they've known the Lord for a long time. But they can grow. And so for 40 years, that's been the same mission of my life. It's carried over into my family and into ministry and into purpose, vision, and mission. Everywhere that God has led and everything that he's called me to do revolves around that mission. And so when that day comes, and I hope it's a long way off, a long way off. You know, we believe there's baseball in heaven, but I don't want to be pitching tomorrow. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, a long way off, but I would hope that um, something more would be said um, that's lasting, that would live on long after I'm gone. And I hope that's your desire too, through your children, through your family, through your church, through your um, missions, through your generosity, through your life. What really matters? And I've found in life, and I've lived enough of it now, that it's really relationships that matter at the end of the day anyhow. To the men, how many of you still have your first car? Okay, Andy, I figured you would. Um, I think in your, putting it in your living room was a little much, but I understand. I understand, still have the first car. Uh, how many remember your first car? Okay, you see what I'm saying? It was important enough for you to remember, but it's all gone. It's all gone. What really matters in life? And again, nothing wrong with a nice car. Uh, I want one too. I mean, I have a nice family mobile, but my dream car is not a hybrid. No offense to hybrids, because at this stage of life, I'm enjoying only going to the gas station once a month. So there, 
Anyway, what is it that we want to accomplish? Well, we've looked at Nehemiah's life, and we know that his vision, mission, was based on his passion, because when he saw Jerusalem and the walls not rebuilt, what did he do? Does anybody remember? He cried. It touched him deeper than just on the surface. Okay? That's where our vision and mission comes from. What is our passion? What makes you cry? And the other part of it is what makes you angry. Godly anger. What upsets you? The injustice or something that's happening that, that upsets you. That's how God directs you towards your mission. Vision is confirmed by provision. Remember, Nehemiah went to the king who could have ordered his death because he was sad in his presence, right? But instead, Nehemiah said a quick prayer, an instant prayer. He prayed, and then he asked, he asked uh, Artaxerxes what he needed. Not only did he need to be released from his important position, but in the end, he also needed Artaxerxes to pay for something that he had years ago said could never be rebuilt. I mean, that's a big ask. And what did God do through that? Artaxerxes says, absolutely. Here's the paperwork you need. Here's the lumber you need to accomplish that. See, God's vision will be confirmed through provision, through provision. See, if my mission in life was to be an NBA basketball player, God did not provide that because I was born Italian. At my peak, I was 5'9", and at my happiest, I'm like at 220. See, I'm not at 220 now because I have a wedding coming up. So you can put that together if he's not at his happiest, okay? You can figure that out on your own. God didn't provide that. LeBron James grew into 6'8", 260 of steel. And so that's great for him to have that dream and desire. If I can mention that to LeBron, um, not, but basketball was not his mission in life. It's what he used to accomplish his mission, which was helping other people. You know, he built a school in his hometown that underprivileged children go for free. That's his mission. See, I think that's, I mean, that gives me chills to think about. But vision is confirmed by provision. My mission in life is to be an NBA basketball player. Well, that wasn't going to happen under any circumstances. Vision is, vision is then accomplished through opposition. Remember we talked about this for a couple of weeks? If you're trying to accomplish something, anything, you will face opposition. Someone will be angry. Someone will be jealous. Someone will disagree. Someone will try to undermine what you're trying to accomplish. That's just the way life is. To, today, I want to look at mission is accomplished by planning and partnering. Planning and partnering. I'm going to give you a minimum of four words. I ended up with more when I was preaching online, but a minimum of four words that will help you in whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, whether it's the big picture idea of, of wanting people to grow in their relationship to the Lord, or it's just, I need to get this accomplished this, this day, this month, this stage of life. Okay? And so we're going to read quickly from Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20. Nehemiah 2, 11 through 20. So I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. I had not told anyone about the plans. 
We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding, and after dark I went out through the valley gate past the wall, and he looked at all the burned walls, and verse 14 um, and so though, verse 15, so though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. The first word in planning is be discreet. You don't have to tell everyone everything you're thinking all the time. That is so key. It's key relationally. It's key in, in uh, uh, leadership. Okay? Um, be discreet. Don't share every thought. Don't share every plan because what you want to accomplish, I'll just use this as an example because this is how our board works all the time. You know, our next meeting will be in March, and we might start talking about plans for July, whatever they might be. Well, I don't stand up the day after our first meeting when we only discussed it for a little bit, and we tabled it, and we're going to talk about it more. I don't come to the congregation and tell you everything that we thought. I don't give you Steve's perspective, Linda's perspective, Joyce's perspective, my perspective, because it's not time. See, when we finally make the decisions and what we, you know, want to do and go forward, after we've processed it, prayed about it, planned for it, then I come to you and say, hey, here's the goal that we're working on. Have you ever noticed that? That I never talk about things that we don't end up accomplishing. Did you ever notice that? And you can look at all of the big things that have, have happened, things that I've said, probably off-the-cuff remarks are different, but things that we've really worked at and planned at, every single one of them has been accomplished because we worked at it first. Be discreet. You don't have to tell everybody everything because if you tell everybody everything and you don't get it done, you lose credibility. And I know that as a pastor and as a leader, all I have is credibility. All I have is that people trust over years, over years. And when you tell everybody everything and then you don't accomplish it or you just fly off the handle and you're emotional in your decisions, you, you, you lose the very credibility that you need to lead to the next level. Do you understand that? This is straight leadership stuff here today. You have to take it, apply it to your situation. I can't apply it to all of your situations. I'm just giving you the principles. Be discreet. Even Nehemiah didn't tell anyone the plans yet because it wasn't time. Take your time under discreet. Take your time to make big decisions. Take your time. Write that down if you're an impulsive decision maker. Because whether you make that decision impulsively or you plan for the decision, you're going to live with the consequences. Let's say you're riding by the car dealerships on Delcy Drive. You have some on this side. You have some on this side. You have Subaru, Toyota, Kia, Chevrolet, and on the opposite side, you have Ford, okay? Plus all the used cars down the, down the lot there. Imagine you were an impulsive decision maker and you look, and I'm just using trucks because I like trucks. I like the big trucks that I can't get in anymore. I like those. I like the sound. I like the rumble. Not necessarily 11 o'clock, but at, at other times. I like that. Big, big truck. But if you're driving down and you see the truck and say, wow, that is awesome. I think I'm going to stop in. 
and the guy comes and says, oh, what can you afford? And you tell him, oh, no problem, we can do that. Well, they didn't tell you that the interest rate is such and such and that you're going to be paying for it for the next 10 years. Okay, so take that number and try to do 36 or 48 months on whether you can afford it. That's just a little tip for you. But imagine that you did that and you drive home and you say, look, honey, I bought a new truck. Why? Why did you do that? Oh, because it looks so good. And it's something I've always wanted. And I, I, because it looks so good and it's something I always wanted. What about the roof on the house? What about the furnace that's old? See? Don't make these big decisions impulsively, please. I've watched people for 40 years make impulsive decisions, and guess what? The consequences are real, are real. And for car purchases and truck purchases that are over your head, the repo man is also real. And what it will do to your credit is also real. Well, I just felt like it. Well, you just felt like it. You're still going to have to pay for it. You understand what I'm saying? Just felt like the right thing to do. Well, that's the dumbest way to make a decision. Really. It's a dumb, dumb way to make a decision. Take your time in making the big decisions. I have a saying, and I try to live this. I make no decision before it's time. And I'll ask, I'll ask do I have to make the decision today? No. Okay, then I'm not. You're smiling. Isn't that true? I'm not going to make it today because I need time to process it. I need time to think about it. If I don't have to make it today, then, then I won't. But I'll be ready when it's time. And I will make the decision. And I'll, by God's grace, hopefully make the right decision. Now, if it's a crisis, somebody was in an accident, well, you have to make a decision. But most of our decisions aren't crisis. Don't make a decision before it's time. Okay? Very, very important. People always have questions that are unanswerable. You don't have to answer everybody's question before you make a move. If you do, you'll never make a move. Okay? Leadership 101. You don't have to answer everybody's questions and everybody's concerns. Okay? Um, all right, I'll, I'll let that go. Uh, so Nehemiah, he didn't go out and investigate with fanfare or parade and all of the leaders. He didn't establish himself as, I'm from the king. And da, da, da. No, he went discreetly. He went quietly. He went at night. And he only took a couple of trusted people with him. Discreet. Don't make emotional decisions because the consequences are lasting. Okay? Number two, define the problem. Write this down. Define Add this word, define the real problem. Define the real problem. And I'm going to use an example that I use all the time till, till I'm tired of hearing of it. And I, I said, Lord, help me think of a different example, but this is still the best example that I could think of. The most important job of a leader is to define the actual problem. Now watch this, because if you're working only on the symptoms you're never going to get to the actual root of the problem. See? So watch how this works. The wife says, take the garbage out. You never take the garbage out. Okay? The husband says, I just took it out yesterday. He thinks, why is she so obsessed with the garbage all the time? The wife says, turn that stupid game off. Husband says, I just turned it on. 
He thinks, why does my wife hate sports? That's not the problem. I'm going to tell you what the problem is because I don't want any of you men to embarrass yourself. The problem is you haven't been spending enough time with your wife and paying enough attention to the person that God has given you. That all of your time and energy and resources are somewhere else and not toward her. She does care about the garbage. That's not the problem. She is tired of sports. That's not the problem. Most reasonable wives can understand men don't remember everything and sometimes we just need to watch sports or whatever our hobby might be. In fact, the longer you've been married, the wife will actually say, please, would you just go watch a game? Leave me alone. Okay? That happens. If you're not there yet, it will happen. But the real problem is you haven't been spending enough time. You're not paying attention. Okay? And I'm kind of picking on the men because I'm afraid of every woman that's here in the congregation. <laughs> I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I was afraid of Kelly. Do you remember that? And I said, there's only one person more afraid of Kelly than me, and it was Justin up in the sound booth. I was in a meeting on Tuesday, and who was there? Brother Kenyon, Pastor Kenyon, 92-year-old Brother Kenyon. He says to me, good to see you. Oh, I hear you're afraid of Kelly. <laughs> How this passed through, I have no idea. <laughs> Whoops. And I said, yes, sir, I am. That's true. And your grandson is the only one more. None of that is true. None of that is true. I did say it, but not. The problem is he's not been paying proper attention. Okay? He's been out too many nights. When he's home, he's not really there. She's been carrying too many of the responsibilities of, at home. Not that she doesn't want to carry out her responsibilities, but it is unfair for her to carry out all the responsibilities. And there was a generational shift that happened. Okay? I don't know when this happened because my mom always worked. But there was a generational thing and even an ethnic thing where the man would work and the wife would stay at home. And so with that were certain expectation of roles. Like my grandfather, my mom's uh, dad, Italian immigrant, came and worked in the steel mills and worked the dirtiest, nastiest jobs because when he came over, the, the Italians and other ethnic groups were at the lowest part of the the caste system. They were looked down upon and ridiculed and called names and were treated unfairly and poorly. And he worked a dirty, miserable job. And so when he got home and my grandmother was home, he wasn't expected to cook and clean and take care of all these things. There's a generational shift, and I think it's for the good. And again, I'm picking on the men, and I don't mean to, but I am literally afraid of the women. And I can say something wrong at any second, so I'm just going to stick to the men. You can't expect your wife to work full time and not share the responsibilities. You want her money that she's earning to go into the till. You have to assume some of those responsibilities. And I'm not great at that. I'm really not, because I grew up differently. I'm, I'm learning through the years. 
So define the real problem. That's the point. What is the real problem here? The real problem is you can't solve it unless you know it. Nehemiah knew they were in trouble. He looked around and saw that the city was burned. And the real problem was these walls need to be rebuilt because we're a disgrace and we're an easy target for the nations. That's the real problem. The real problem wasn't that Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem were angry at him. That's just part of it. He didn't spend his whole life and time with the critics. Instead, he defined the real problem, and you need to do the same. All right. I'm going to skip ahead. So he, he defines the problem. He, he tells them what needs to happen. And then he says, I told them about, verse 18, the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. So he said, God has pointed and God has provided. See that? God told me and then the conversation with the king proved that God was in this. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. And so they began the good work. Nehemiah says, here's how I got here. God has been good. God has provided. He's taken care of our needs. Now I need to, number three, develop the plan. One is discreet. Two is define the problem. And three is to develop the plan. And so here was the plan. All the families and the leaders of that area will take their part of the wall and rebuild it. That's the plan. The problem is it needs to be rebuilt. How are we going to get it done? What's the plan? The plan is that everybody is going to fix the wall where they live. And if they have to fight, they're going to fight. Prayer, practical. Pray, carry a sword. Because they'll fight harder if they're fighting for their family. He didn't get two or three people and said, okay, you guys do it all. Which is point number four. See how quickly I went to that one? And that's my last point. Delegate the workload. Because whatever God has called you to do, it's bigger than you can do on your own. Okay? Delegate the workload. Nehemiah didn't start rebuilding the wall. Because that wasn't his thing. He delegated the workload. He oversaw what was taking place. He motivated the people. He inspired the people. He dealt with the critics and all of that. But I don't know that he was the builder of the wall because everybody did their part. He delegated the workload. There's a, a great quote uh, that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. So I have never been able to accomplish the mission God has given me without each of you. We're partners in this. We're partners in everything we do. My role is different than yours, but we're on the same team. And that's what I love about this church. We're all on the same team here. We have different perspectives and different viewpoints. But we all work together to accomplish the same purpose. And that's why our church is as great as it is. And I'm so excited about that. And I'm so excited to see people coming, but not just new people coming, but people growing in their relationship to the Lord and their relationship to each other. I love that. I love sitting back and watching people interact with each other. 
whether it's flannels and favorites or it's the missions convention coming up or whatever else it is, I'm like, you know, this is awesome because this crazy church with this weird group of people We love God and we love each other. There's a concept. I don't know that any of you hate each other. I hope not. I don't think so. I would have known by now. We love God and we love each other. That's something. That we set aside our own desires and purposes sometimes because we realize, you know, there are bigger things that need to be accomplished. We realize that at the end of the day, it's God's will that's more important than my will. And our church is just awesome. I could never do what I do. I could never do what God has called me to do without partners. Thank you for all of you that are willing to step up when work has to be delegated. I don't have a lot of skills. I can preach. I can teach. I can lead. And I can um, um, that, I'm thinking that's it. Teach. I can't build, I can't fix things, oh, I can't cook. There's mo- most things I can't do, I don't want to even list them all, okay? But God has given me partners to help, and you're all a part of that, and I thank you for that, and I mean that sincerely. We could never be what God wants us to be without delegating the workload. And let me give you one last tip here and I'll close. If you're going to delegate the workload, this is important, define the expectations. Because you can't blame someone for not doing what you want them to do if you never define the expectations. That'll work at home. You're expected to vacuum. You're expected to dust. You're expected to cook on these days. You're expected to do this. Okay, oh, I know what else I'm good at ordering food out and bringing it in. I'm very good at that. My wife works full time. She does a majority of the cooking. I grill in the summer. I do kind of help there, but I'm not a good cook. If she needs a break, she works full time. It's hard work that she does. If she needs a break, we go out to eat or I bring something in. It's as simple as that. Simple as that because whatever money I spend, it doesn't matter because I'm not taking it with me. But I love my wife, and I want her to know that. And if she needs a break, she gets it. And money is no object. No object. Because she's worth it. All right, I don't know why I said all that, but it's true. Clearly define the expectations. Let me go this a little further. For parents, you can't yell at your kids for doing something when they don't know what the expectations are. And here's a simple one. I want your room to be clean by Saturday. I know you're in school all week and you know, you're doing your homework and all that stuff, but by Saturday, your room has to be clean. That's the expectation, okay? It doesn't work to say, you never clean your room, ba 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 Establish that standard. By Saturday, your room has to be clean, okay? And, and we'll go from there. Then after you establish the expectation, you hold them accountable. Well, I don't wanna clean my room. You know, that works perfectly because um, I don't want to pay for your classes or, you know, dance, sports, I don't know, whatever they're involved in. That's funny. That works because I don't want to do that either. Isn't that funny how that works? So you know that team you wanted to play on? That would be a no. 
Because it's funny too, like I have other stuff that has to be done besides chauffeur you around. This really works out perfect. You don't want to clean your room, I don't want to spend the rest of my life driving you around. Isn't that great? And you can call the coach and let him know. Right? Okay. Here's one that works with kids now. You know, that's funny because we have Wi-Fi at the house. How, do you, how much do you love Wi-Fi? Oh, I love Wi-Fi. How much do you love your phone? I don't know what I would do without my phone. That's funny because you didn't clean your room. I just changed the Wi-Fi code. <laughs> and, and, and you're only going to get one letter a day uh, until you do what I asked you to do. Isn't that funny? And then you could change the Wi-Fi code to like, dear Lord, give me patience as a parent. And you just give them one letter a day. One letter a day. It's interesting how motivation can help. But you see what I'm saying? Let them know what the expectations are. Adam and Eve, you can eat all of this. Everything I've created for you except this. And if you do that, here's the consequences. Life is like that for parenting. This is very simple. Here's what I expect. You can have all this. We'll drive you around. We'll buy your food, clothes. I mean, not when you're, you know, you know 40 and 50 years old. You know, there's another word for that. But anyway, um, you know, when they're young, and we'll take care of all of that, and we're happy that you're involved, and we'll be a part of that. But here's your expectations, and if you don't do it, here's what's going to happen. It's crazy. It works. It really does. Ah. Uh, tell you a secret for your parents, because it's Family Life Day. You're the parent. You can be friends later. In fact, that's one of the joys of parenting as your children get older and move out. You can have more of a friendship relationship. But while they're in your house, you're their parent. You're in charge. <laughs> Not little Susie, Joey, Jimmy. I don't know. I watch this from a distance. And I'm going to somewhat be joking. I call it the cart before the horse, and that's when the kid leads the family. That is the worst thing you can do as a parent. You lead, and it starts early. If you don't lead till they're a teenager, not that it's too late, but it's almost too late. You lead when they're young. It's time to eat. It's time to do your homework. It's time to go to bed. It's time to get up. It's time to go to school. It's time to clean your room. You lead. And you know what we found? I mean, I don't know how many times we yelled at our kids, but less than on one hand. I mean, I don't even remember yelling. I mean, maybe Dora, you yelled more, but just because she was around them more, I th that came out wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that was really wrong. But I mean, we didn't yell and scream at the kids. We never did. One time I got mad at Lindsay. She slammed her door, and we didn't do that. And I stood up so fast, I got lightheaded, <laughs> literally. And I marched down, well, that's not what we do. Then I found out later, what, and I told this story before, what Pastor Rose's dad did. He took the door off the hinges. 
and rode it and slammed the door anymore. Now, now Mel, Mel, Mel was a problem. Mel was a problem. Can I tease you, Mel? May your kids grow up just like you. No, no, I'm teasing. But anyway, all right, I'm done. I just think some of these are funny. But I think, and I watch these kids run the household, and I said, I'm going to have to deal with this later because they're going to be calling their pastor. They don't know what to do because they never learned. All right. Pastor Joe, family life, work on that. (laughs) Define the problem, develop the plan, and delegate the workload. I just did it. See how that works? Be discreet. You don't have to tell everybody everything. You understand? Okay? Be discreet. Work with your spouse. Work with those that are closest to you. Okay? Define the problem. Make sure you're working on what the root of the problem is. Okay? The root of the problem might not be that, you know, your job is terrible. The root of the problem might be you spend too much money. Okay? So don't quit your job without having another job if the problem is you're spending too much money. You see what I'm saying? Define the problem, develop the plan, delegate the workload, make the expectations clear, and you will be able to accomplish all that God has called you to do, just like Nehemiah did. I'm going to read a quote from Winston Churchill. I love this. He was the prime minister of England during the Second World War. And the, the Nazis had developed a, a war machine. I mean, they were tearing through Europe, and it was frightening. Winston Churchill, who was a superb motivator, never promised anything external. He didn't promise prosperity or leisure, not the return of good times. He offered only satisfaction of having done a diffi- difficult tax, uh, test well. He said this, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. What is our aim? I can answer in one word, define the problem, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and with growing strength in the air. And we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if we, which I don't believe for a moment we will, This island, or a large part of it, were subjugated and starving. Then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Powerful words. Define the problem. What are we going to do? We're going to fight. We're not going to give up, even if it takes, and the last part of it was, other generations to accomplish what we couldn't do. Listen, the mission and vision 
of this church is going to take more than one generation to accomplish. And that's why we pour in to those that we pour into because I fully expect to see some of those some of those children that we dismiss from service being leaders, dismissed so they can learn on their level. I fully expect them to be leaders. I fully expect them to be ready. I fully expect them to take on the mantle when it's time for us to pass it on. It might not be in this generation alone, but we must pour it into the next generation. Winston Churchill said, all I have is blood, sweat, and tears. I want to tell you about another man that offered his blood, his sweat, and his tears. His name is Jesus. And he accomplished the mission of his father because he knew what the problem was. It was sin. And he knew that the plan couldn't involve humans because they couldn't save themselves. He understood that the plan was, was for him to come down and to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. That was the plan from before the foundation of the earth, the lamb that was slain. And then he died that we might be forgiven, and he rose from the dead that we might live forever. And then he delegated the rest of the work, not just to the 12 apostles, but to each and every one of us. And then he said, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending another comforter. I'm sending another counselor. I'm sending a paraclete, someone that will walk beside you, that will strengthen you and teach you. And that's the Holy Spirit. And so I'm telling you that you can do what God has called you to do because God himself is on your side and God himself is with you. Nehemiah closes in verse 20. He says this, the mission God, uh, this is my part, the mission God has given you is always too big for you. But this is straight from scripture, Nehemiah 2.20, the God of heaven will help us succeed. And listen, whatever problem and difficulty you're facing today, the God of heaven will help you succeed. Stop speaking defeat and start speaking victory. Stop looking at all of the problems and look at God's provision. Stop whining up to the heavens and whining to those around you and begin to worship the God of heaven. That there is nothing that you are facing that's too difficult for you and God to accomplish. He will never bring you to something that he can't win the victory through you over. And so we must be victorious. We must be victorious for the next generation so that we have something to pass on to them. So that we can be the generation that says, even when we are old and gray, Lord, do not forsake me until I declare your power to the next generation and your might to all that are to come. And then Jesus closed his earthly ministry before he ascended and said, go and make disciples and I will be with you everywhere you go even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, King James says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is with you, and you will succeed with his help. And all God's people said, Amen. let's stand together. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Hope Online Podcast. For more information about Hope Assembly of God, go to www.godgivesyouhope.com or download our app in the App Store.